Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams, and today we're heading back to the 2nd of July, 1870. That was the day a forgotten Australian scientific genius put an end to a shocking snake tale that had been doing the rounds of the colonial newspapers. 150 years ago today, the curator and secretary of the Australian Museum in Sydney, the country's greatest zoologist and paleontologist, Johann Ludwig Gerard Kreft, sat down to write a letter. He was replying to the editor of the Albury Banner, who'd sent Kreft a query along with an article that had recently appeared in that newspaper. Kreft's reply began, quote, Dear Sir, I received the paper with an account of the capture of an electric snake. The electric snake story had appeared in the Banner on the 25th of June as a letter from a Mr John Hill of Albury. Mr Hill's story went like this. On a recent cold morning, he and three other gents were working on a property in the Mitta Mitta region when they were surprised by a huge serpent slithering out from under a bundle of shingles. As this beast had a yellow belly and yellow stripes across its back, the men at first believed it was a tiger snake. John Hill wrote, quote, We held a council of war as to the best way of making away with the snake. One of the party suggested that we should decapitate the snake and turn it into soup for dinner. Another proposed that we should tie it up by the tail as a warning to all other snakes for miles around. But another of the party, with a scientific turn of mind, thought it best to overhaul him and try to discover the snake's private habits and modes of living. Settling for the minute on Plan C, these would-be herpetologists set about their business. Quote, The man of science approached with a forked stick in his hands and the snake then moved himself into a position either for death or glory. He lashed his tail, drew his muscles up, moistened his mouth and, with his flashing eyes and flattened head, stood his ground like an enraged devil. The odds were against him for, with a well-directed dart, the forked stick pinned him to the ground and sealed his fate. We then began our researches with a sharp pointed stick. Mr Hill continued... We examined his mouth and were surprised we did not find a double row of teeth and some formidable poison fangs. We were therefore soon satisfied that we should not discover any fact of natural history for the benefit of future ages. Concluding they'd done enough snake science for one morning, the men reverted to plan A. Quote, We managed with a stroke of a tomahawk to cut off its head. Of course, if they were going to tell their snake tale to their friends and family, it'd be so much more impressive if they could accurately describe how long the snake had been. So one of the men went to pick it up by the tail, only to get one hell of a shock. Quote, To our immense surprise, the snake seemed possessed with bottled-up lightning. It drew up its body, trembling as if with a fit of ague, and with one well-directed effort or charge, sent a violent electric shock up the arm of the man who had got hold of its tail. 
Our scientific friend felt the shock up his arm and through his left side and twisted and reeled about as if he had held the handles of a powerful electric battery. He disengaged himself from the snake as soon as his numbed hand would allow him to do so and cried, Eureka! Eureka! with the enthusiasm which only men of science under the impulse of some new discovery are capable of. The other men weren't going to let this Archimedes of the Antipodes claim all the scientific glory. So, a bit like Jackaroo Johnny Knoxville's, they each took a turn at grabbing the snake's tail. Each of them got a buzz, though of lesser intensity each time. This led the men to the scientific conclusion that the first shock delivered by the headless reptile had drained much of its stored snake electricity. John Hill mused, quote, As I can vouch for the truth of the above statements, I thought it would be interesting to your readers to know if other countries possess electric eels, we on the Mitimitter have electric snakes. Mr Hill's letter concluded by noting that the property owner he worked for hoped now to catch several specimens and send them down to Melbourne scientists for further investigation. This letter was published all over the place. The Melbourne Age, the Argus, the Geelong Advertiser, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Sydney Mail, the Kiama Independent and many more. The Melbourne leader reckoned that the story was not improbable and editorialised, quote, as a specimen of the Mitamita snake is likely to be sent to Melbourne for examination, we may shortly have an authoritative report on the subject. But Johann Ludwig Gerard Kreft of the Australian Museum didn't need a specimen to decide that Mr Hill's story was total BS, that is, bogus snake. Born in Germany in 1830, Kreft was a self-taught zoologist who'd originally come to Australia in search of gold. Since 1861, though, he'd been the Australian Museum's curator and his achievements included identifying and naming more than two dozen species, including the cassowary and the saltwater crocodile. Yet, there was one type of Australian creature he knew better than anyone in the world. Snakes. Just a year before Mr Hill's letter, in 1869, Kreft had released his definitive volume, Snakes of Australia, though he was pretty bitter about being forced to self-publish. And just a few months before he heard tell of electric snakes, Kreft's scientific reputation had been further bolstered when he became the first person to describe the Australian lungfish. As a side dish, the story of that discovery is pretty funny. The Australian lungfish, a living fossil, was served up to Kreft, literally, when the New South Wales colonial minister for lands had him over for dinner and presented him with a plate of what he called Burnett River salmon, prized in the vicinity for its lovely pink flesh. Kreft knew this was no salmon, the discovery made news everywhere and confirmed his reputation as a leading man of science. And there was no way this leading man of science was going to allow electric snake nonsense to taint the minds of the Australian public. So, on the 2nd of July 1870, Kreft wrote his letter to the Aubrey Banner, and in it he threw plenty of gentlemanly shade. Quote, Dear Sir, I received the paper with an account of the capture of an electric snake by four gallant young men of Mitamita, who, thanks to merciful providence, came out of the encounter more frightened than hurt, but all more or less electrified. He continued, In reply to your letter, in which you ask me to state whether there is any recorded data in natural history which might lead to the belief that snakes exist possessing the electric power referred to, I can only say... 
that there is not. With a view of giving correct information on a very popular branch of natural history, I have published, at considerable cost to myself, a full account of the snakes of Australia. This work is at everybody's command, and I must refer you to its pages for whatever information you may require on the subject. In other words, he was saying, read a book, specifically my book. It was required reading, if he said so himself. Quote, you will find nothing omitted, and the treatment of snakebite in the bush, based on personal observation, should of itself command a larger sale for the work in the country districts than it has. In other words, don't just read my book, buy my book. The life it saves could be your own, and it'll help me recoup the small fortune I spent on publishing it for you ingrates. Kreft pointed out that actual professionals, such as himself, risked their lives to collect snakes for scientific study, but they did so safely and scientifically. He then set the record straight. Mr John Hill and his mates hadn't discovered a new electric species, but merely tangled with a tiger snake, quote, which I have frequently handled dead and alive without ever being electrified by it. And if any person will bring me an electric snake, I will pay five pounds to some charitable institution. Spoiler alert, John Hill didn't come forward to present an electric snake, and I've not found any further reference to his zoological adventures. But there is so much more to Gerard Kreft, and I'm glad I stumbled upon this snake letter because it led me to learn a little bit more about this forgotten figure. In his time, Kreft had more scientific cred than just about anyone else in Australia, but this also made him a controversial figure and set him up for a fall and tragic fate. Kreft was a pen pal of Charles Darwin's and, unlike the museum's trustees and Sydney's clergy, he accepted the theory of evolution. This heresy and other frictions led colonial authorities to use all sorts of smears as excuses to fire Kreft from his position. They accused him of drinking on the job, willfully smashing a fossil and allowing dirty postcards to be sold from the souvenir shop. The worst charge though came in December 1873 when they blamed Kreft for the theft of £60 worth of gold from the museum. Matters came to a head the following year and Kreft was fired and then Adamantly refused to leave the museum, which wasn't just his workplace, but also where he had living quarters that he shared with his wife and children. On the 21st of September 1874, Mr E. H. Hill, one of the museum's trustees, hired two, quote, resolute men, one of whom was a boxer, to physically eject Kreft and his belongings. These belongings included a big red leather chair, and Kreft was sitting in this chair when Mr Hill's hired goons broke into his rooms at the museum and physically carried him through the premises and tossed him into the street. The Sydney Morning Herald's account of this reads like black comedy. As Mr Hill yells insults, his muscly minions struggle with their chairload of scientists, and Kreft whacks them over the head with his stick as he cackles. Yet while a farce, it was also a tragedy. After 14 years of service, Kreft had just lost his £500 a year income, his family home and his status in Australian society. But the thing was, Kreft and his family resided in the museum at the pleasure of the New South Wales government and the trustees had no right to throw him out. He sued and won and was awarded £1,250 in damages. 
but by then the damage was done. Although Kreft would briefly publish a scientific journal, he never regained his status and, suffering from ill health exacerbated by being forced to live in poverty, he died on the 19th of February 1881 at the age of just 51. The Australian Town and Country Journal began its obituary, quote, Mr Gerard Kreft, the distinguished naturalist whose disputes with the trustees of the Australian Museum embittered the last years of his life, is now beyond the reach of earthly care. He might have been beyond the reach of earthly care, but earthly care for his legacy was a long time coming. Nearly 150 years, actually. In 2017, the Australian Museum put Gerard Kreft's red leather chair on permanent display in belated recognition of the man, his achievements and the injustice he suffered. Speaking to the Sydney Morning Herald at the time, the Australian Museum's director and CEO, Kim McKay, said of her predecessor, quote, He is one of those Australians who we have overlooked and he was incredibly significant. It's hard to argue with that. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening. And catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.